Nice. I think Jeremy and I are going to drink a bunch of kava and then have second dinner. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your co-host, Sean Hartman, in-house graphic designer for Mother Croker's Hemorrhoid Ointment. <laughs> I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, covert reorganizer of DJ Hard Bargain's Discog Store Jazz Section. Oof, that's a lot of work. Yeah, don't tell him I'm, uh, well... I'm not reorganizing it for the better. Let's say that. <laughs> I am co-host Peter, the crooning troubadour. And I am guest Chris Connolly, and I ran away from Scotland, and I can't tell you what I do now. <laughs> oh my. You're on the lamb. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Chris. Do you want to... Tell the people about yourself real quick before we dive into today's record. Yes, um, uh, like I said, I ran away from Scotland. Uh, I reside in the United States. Uh, I'm a musician. I've been playing music for over 40 years now, since the late 70s. And um, I moved over here in uh, the mid to late 80s to join the band Ministry. And uh, I collaborate with very many people and i have collaborated with many people and it's what i do and it's what i like right on yeah you have an extensive discography looking at your solo work alone but then you know pig face and revolting cocks and all kinds of stuff yeah and much of it is in the bargain bin so <laughs> you could buy that for a dollar <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you selected the record for this week. Do you want to tell us what we're going to be listening to? We're going to be listening to Tiny Tim's second album, which is called Tiny Tim's second album. And, uh, <laughs> Appropriately titled. It's from 1968, and that's what we're going to be looking at this week. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and uh, jump into your first track selection. My dreams are getting better all the time. Side A, track two. Well, what do you know? You smiled at me in my dreams last night. My dreams are getting better all the time. And what do you know? You looked at me in a different light. My dreams are getting better all the time. To think that we were strangers a couple of nights ago. And though it's a dream I never dreamed you'd ever say hello Well maybe tonight you hold me tight when the moonbeams shine My dreams are getting better all the time My dreams are getting better all the time And though it's a dream, I never dreamed you'd ever say hello. Well, maybe tonight you'll hold me tight when the moonbeams shine. My dreams are getting better all the time. My dreams are getting better all the time. That's exactly the kind of thing that I started diving deeper into music to find. <laughs> That's the pinnacle of record collecting for you. <laughs> Well, it's just, uh, there's so much going on there, but it's so well done, you know, and it's just bizarre, but joyous and <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, I think that one of the things I've noticed about Tiny Tim's first two records is they're both produced by Richard Perry, who's who's quite a name producer. I mean, we, we've all heard of Richard Perry. I mean, he's, he remained contemporary for a long time. But he seems to really love this. I mean, the, the attention to detail and the, the production. 
the production of doing a record like that in those days, you know, you had to find the right players and you had to find the right orchestra and the right studio. And you were working with probably a very temperamental and fragile ego in, in, in the form of Tiny Tim. So what a, what a beautiful job was done. Yeah. Very specific aesthetic to bring that many people together and achieve. <laughs> Not unlike uh, someone like Brian Wilson, who who brought together a similar ensemble. But, you know, <laughs> looking at it from 2021, can you even imagine a record company throwing that kind of money at that? Wow. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> what, a, what a dream. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and a, a record company owned by Frank Sinatra, no less. Of course, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that has continually kept me drawn to Tiny Tim's music is the way that he presents these silly songs in earnest. You know, he he's not afraid to make humorous and serious songs, but he kind of gives it the same energy either way, almost. And I think that in some way speaks to a lot of his uh, longevity and fame. I agree. And one of the things that I noticed about Tiny Tim from the moment I heard him, when he slips into falsetto, when he does that, he, he means it. There's nothing self-conscious about it at all. And, you know, the first time I heard him, it was Tiptoe Through the Tulips. But then I heard songs where he, and many of the songs on this album are, are are two characters, you know, the the deeper voice and and it's very unselfconscious and actually probably really well rehearsed. Some of the things he's doing is, you know, basically slipping in and out of characters, either male male and female or two different males or whatever. Um, but there's nothing he meant it, you know, to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this wasn't just a, a simple joke or novelty to him. And it's it's kind of a miracle that, like you were saying, these producers that he got hooked up with were able to recognize that element in his music and treat the arrangements with that level of seriousness and commitment. Yeah, and you know, with all respect to Tiny Tim, if you think about who was making records at that time, and who you're going to be thrown in. If you're a staff producer, if you were thrown in with someone, like I'm just pulling names out the air, like the Jefferson Airplane or something like that, who might show up like high on acid or something, you know that Tiny Tim was a professional. No matter how eccentric he may seem, he knew his music very, very well. And there were so many new bands who were just a sort of Hayton Ashbury mess <laughs> to try and corral a band in the <laughs> studio was probably a nightmare most of the time. Uh, but this was, uh, this is more showbiz, baby, you know, yeah. <laughs> but so wrong in that respect, but still, yeah, so right. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if you were to try and sell someone on Tiny Tim, who's either not familiar or maybe just has heard tiptoe through the tulips and thinks of it as, as a, a novelty act to be passed off. What would you? What would your argument be? What would you do to convince? Oh well, it would be easy for me. I've compelled people to buy things before because I'm such a record nut. But look, I, you know, I have told people about Tiny Tim's second album, and they're all like, "Really?" And it's the same as I say when I say, you know, yeah, Love Over Gold by Dire Straits is a brilliant album. Really? Well, look at the work that went into it. Look at how beautifully paced it is. Look at how the depths of the songs. And this also, you know, for me, when I first heard this album at 14 years old in Edinburgh, in Scotland, it brought to me this wonderful sense of memory, the sense of memory of a place I'd never been. And that place was kind of New York in the 50s, like kids playing in the streets. And it was very romantic. I mean, it was so romantic. And it's all over this album and the storytelling. Very, very American. And I, I think I'd have a really easy time to get someone to listen to it. I mean, I remember telling someone... Okay, it's slightly different topic. I told someone to buy the second Scott Walker album and she got back to me and said it was just like having a panic attack for 40 minutes. So I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I could see someone coming back to me with Tiny Tim and just being really disturbed by it. But I think you have to listen to it. I mean, you have to really listen to it at a deep level. 
Yeah, as someone who had just heard of Tiny Tim about a week ago, I was unfamiliar and like at first blush, I was like, what is this? Why is he doing this put on? But the more you listen and the more you read about him, like it was not a put on at no, all. No, no, no. He no, was no. extremely knowledgeable about turn of the century pop music. He's an extremely talented musician and he believes the things he's, I don't know, it's all earnest. It's not how you might perceive it at first. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that all goes into this record, into Tiny Tim's second album, which, you know, did not do so well. And I'm shocked that it didn't. But in in a sense, I'm not because it was 1968. I mean, it, it was to get young sort of people who were going to Woodstock to buy this seems like a hard sell. It seems like a hard thing to do after the one novelty hit of the year before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, f- I feel like, you know, there had to be a certain amount of like the Woodstock crowd that got it as like this kind of, you know, genuine outsider, weirdo, people's champion kind of thing. But most of the people just casually hearing tiptoe through the tulips are not going to make that association of course, right away. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, this would have been uh, their parents or even their grandparents' generation music that Tiny Tim is calling back. And so, you know, that might not necessarily, you know, at the height of the kind of the rebellion and the generation gap to, oh yeah, remember the good old days of this kind of pop music? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. People didn't want that kind of thing then. And in fact, people, it's funny because one of my one of my biggest pet peeves about being a record collector is there's a certain time between sort of 1969 and 1972 where most everyone on the records had to have one ragtimey song. Yeah. And it was almost like they were poking fun at that genre. It's like, hey, here you go, old timer. Yeah, thinking <laughs> they had like a Country Joe and the Fish at Woodstock did, I feel like I'm fixing to die yeah, rag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but historically, and I know we're going to get into the history of Tiny Tim later, it, 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 it is revealed as not any kind of novelty at all. I mean, this is, this is what the man did. And to have his, uh, you know, to have that, excuse me, uh, that kind of dream brought to life for him must have been incredible to do Tiny Tim's second album, to go in with Richard Perry with this vision of something. Because it is, in a sense, a concept album, the way the songs segue together. And uh, it's an overreach. It's it's like... Um, Van Dyke Parks or something like that. It's He didn't need to make a record as complicated as Tiny Tim's second album, and yet he did. There's so much love and work in it. Yeah, it's interesting that I feel like the result is maybe somewhere between Van Dyke Parks, Sergeant Peppers, and like Wild Man Fisher. Yeah, I was going to bring up Wild Man Fisher. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. As we mentioned, he had you know this great appreciation for turn-of-the-century pop music, but really he was something of like a professional music archivist aside from the performing talent. He claimed to have memorized and be able to perform at will thousands of songs. Yeah. Yeah. One of his lifelong hobbies was going to the New York public library and looking up old sheet music and wax cylinders and 78s and just memorizing these forgotten songs but then at the same time, also learning and memorizing current day pop songs. He he talked a lot about how he loved pop music of any genre yeah. and was just truly interested in music, regardless of who was making it or what genre or decade or any of that. Right, right. He did People Are Strange, you mm-hmm. know, which was at the time the doors were the thing, you know, they were huge. Yeah, exactly. And on top of that, he was kind of one of the first androgynous pop stars before that was a much more common thing just a few years later. Yeah, he was. He had that long hair in the mid-60s, and uh, as you probably know, he wore makeup as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, it's, it's more in the sort of Liberace, Liberace direction in that, you know, 
you got to have a thing. You got to have a gimmick, or people aren't going to notice you. Yeah, exactly. he was he was greatly impoverished trying to make it as a musician, and he tried different. And this was a thing back then. I mean, I think even uh, David Soul had a masked man singer thing before he ever became, you know, Starsky and Hutch. It was a thing to make you. It was kind of a thing a manager might say to you, "Kid, you gotta have a you gotta have a thing. Go out and get a cape and a." stick in a crown or something like that <laughs> yeah I, i've seen uh tiny tim address that in interviews where his goal with the falsetto voice and the you know the goofy clothes and the makeup was partly just to set himself apart i mean it was genuine choices and things that he enjoyed also things that were influenced by older uh performers specifically the, the move to grow out his hair and wear the makeup was initially inspired by the early film star Rudolph Valentino. Yes, yes, exactly. But one of the things he talked about in interviews was that he was less concerned with whether people liked what he did, more so with whether they remembered him or not, and whether he stood out and wanted to be <laughs> instantly recognizable for his own music. Yeah, I mean, I seeing him in these clips you see on YouTube with the the hosts of the TV shows just sort of rolling their eyes. I mean, that guy had balls to do that. I mean, I would, I would just melt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're on a and uh, when you're on a TV show and you know people are basically laughing at you, he had so much, and he's so naked as well. I mean, he just had that tiny ukulele, and he's such a giant man. I mean, yeah, no one's ever <laughs> going to forget him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and he he seems to just bask in the reaction, you know, whether it's laughter or applause. He he seems to just be happy to be doing what he's doing when he's up there. Right. Absolutely. Well, should we get into another song here? Yeah. All right. The next track is Christopher Brady's Old Lady, Side A, Track 8. And now the makers of Mother Croker's Hemorrhoid Ointment present another serial in the adventures of life. The question, can an old man in his twilight years find romance in a youth that he still dreams of? She held out her hand and he had to comply. She That's definitely one of my favorite tracks Absolutely. on the record. I think, you know, we touched on the the complexity and beauty of the production and the earnestness that he presented these songs and also the knowledge of old time music. And I think that song is a perfect example of that whole facet of his artistry. Absolutely. And for me as a singer, the way that he slips from the falsetto into his uh, tenor it's just wonderful, effortless, playing two characters. And it's a narrative as well. They're not 
the characters aren't singing the song. It's 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 a narrator. But whenever he sings about the female, he goes up to the falsetto, and vice versa. And um, I think that for this is definitely my favorite Tiny Tim song of all time. I think it's just wonderful. The drama at the end when when he enunciates the bullet, he goes. Oh, I gave away the ending. Sorry, folks. That doesn't end well. <laughs> um, what a beautiful, what a beautiful song. What a wonderful melody as well. Yeah. But it also, sorry, I meant to say, it also touches upon something about Tiny Tim with, with you know, an old man and a younger girl, which is like one of his things. He he liked younger women. Uh, and that, that that's interesting to me that that song reflects that idea. Mm-hmm. We can get into uh, more of that a little bit later. Right. Uh, I'm going to run through a quick bio, and I also wanted to touch on the uh, producer, Richard Perry, and the two other arrangers that worked on this record. So uh, for anyone unfamiliar, Richard Perry is also one of the co-producers of Captain Beefheart's Safe as Milk record, and he also worked with countless other musicians, two notable ones that I think kind of have some similarities sonically at least to this is Ella Fitzgerald and Harry Nilsson. Right. <laughs> so he's good at making weirdos accessible. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. And then uh, two of the other arrangers on here, Gene Page, who arranged the first song we heard, My Dreams Are Getting Better All the Time. Another very prolific uh, soul musician and arranger. He did the soundtrack to the film Blackula. And he also worked with artists such as Solomon Burke, Tina Turner, and the psych band Fever Tree. Wow. And then the other arranger is Perry Botkin Jr., who, again, worked with many, many people. But the three I wrote down are Melanie, Jose Feliciano, and Bobby Gentry. Oh, Bobby Gentry. You know, just uh, an aside here, uh, this album, Tiny Tim's second album, reminds me of her second album, which I can't remember the name of it, but it was very much a concept album, in a sense. I don't know if you've done a Bobby Gentry show. We haven't. Bobby Gentry's records are just getting more and more expensive all the time, it seems yeah. like. But <laughs> Thank you, Cocaine and Rhinestones, for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Perry Botkin had produced and arranged Bobby Gentry's third record, Local Gentry, okay. which also came out in 1968. Okay. Yep. Just as well, the Christopher Brady's Old Lady, that one had been arranged by Botkin, and it was written by the songwriting team Anders and Poncia, which I've had this Anders and Poncia album in my collection that was given to me for years, and I, was, I just tripped when I saw their name pop up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, hey, look, there they are. I don't know anything about them, so that's all I have to contribute with that detail. <laughs> All right, real quick, here's some Tiny Tim bio. So Tiny Tim was born under the name Herbert Boutros Corey on April 12, 1932. He had an early interest in playing music and also listening to his parents' 78 collection. He began as a street performer in the 40s, and he did free open mics and busking and street performer stuff at night and then worked various messenger jobs by day to get by. And as I said, he was inspired in the early fifties by Rudolph Valentino to grow out his hair and start wearing makeup. And in 1959, he was billed as Larry Love, the singing canary at Hubert's museum and live flea circus in times square where he was doing early versions of the the tiny tim act basically in 1959 all the way back then and he didn't start doing regular paid gigs until 1963 still operating under various pseudonyms and then in 1965 he officially adopted the nickname tiny tim and that was because he was at that point booked to follow an act starring people with dwarfism and because tiny tim was actually 61 a very large figure at that point it was basically just a simple ironic billing but stuck for the rest of his career <laughs> during the mid 60s he's performing more regularly in the greenwich village scene especially and gaining a pretty strong local following amongst you know the eccentrics of new york at the time and in 1968 he was basically discovered and 
brought out to the West Coast to try out for Frank Sinatra's reprise records. He also had a starring role in a weird little movie in 1968 called You Are What You Eat, which I have not seen. I don't know if, uh, Peter or Chris, if you guys have seen it. No. No. Mm -hmm. I've come across the soundtrack before, but I've not actually tracked down the film. But I know that, like... That that was some people's first association with him was that film actually. If you know, if you were around in the late '60s and really into avant-garde cinema, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so his first album, God Bless Tiny Tim, came out in 1968 and was a surprise top ten hit, especially because of the song "Tiptoe Through the Tulips." And this album was released just a few months later, trying to capitalize on the success, which it it did not do. And then he made another record in 1969, a children's record actually, called For All My Little Friends. And these are all on reprise? They're not on like bizarre or straight yeah. subsidiaries? No, they were on reprise. Yep, they're on reprise. Yep. Wow. But yeah, the same time that you know the bizarre imprint is getting signed to reprise, so you got Wild Man Fisher and Mothers of Invention cutting records and basically label mates with Tiny Tim at that point. You know, Captain yeah. Beefheart and all of that. The GTOs. Yeah. Um, the Fugs, were they not on? Were, yeah, I think they were. ESP disc. But afterwards, didn't they sign to Reprise? Oh, did they eventually? I don't know. It seemed to me that they, they did after a couple of uh, records sign to Reprise. But uh, yeah. They did. They signed to reprise for, I think, for like Tenderness Junction. Wow. Tenderness Um, Junction. It crawled into my hand. The Bell of Avenue A and Golden Filth were all on reprise. They were getting some weird stuff (laughs) on Frank Sinatra's label. (laughs) The Fugs and Dean Martin. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I was looking through some of the early reprise catalog, just trying to figure out, like, when did they transition into weird stuff? Because... You know, for the first five years or so of that label's existence, it's basically Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Trini Lopez. And then, you know, they sign the kinks in 65 and just start to slowly go downhill from there, it seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And they had Joni Mitchell and... Um, Neil Young. And Hendrix. Yeah, it got to be a very interesting label very quick. It did, <laughs> it did. So after his third record in 69, he didn't actually put out another album until 1981. But one of the other really, I guess, monumental parts of his career was in 1969 when he married his first wife on The Johnny Carson Show, when uh, his first wife, Miss Vicky, was only 17 years old. Yes. And that was, at the time, the second most viewed television episode behind the moon landing. It was Tiny Tim's wedding. Yep, on the Johnny Carson show. Something like 50 million people watched it happen. Wow. Yeah. So high profile. Yeah, and then just a few short years later, he was divorced and living with his parents again. Wow. That's the general early bio, and I wanted to kind of get into just some of the more complicated aspects of Tiny Tim. This was something that I tried to research a lot and it just seemed to keep going with all these different angles you could try and understand Tiny Tim from kind of at a loss of where to, where to even start with it at this point. (laughs) Well, sort of circling back to what you were talking about uh, in his, his early career, it's worth pointing out that when, before he got signed, he hung out with, you know, Karen Dalton kind of looked after him. And Karen Dalton kind of looked after him and Dylan. He knew Dylan back then, like when they were both starving. She would make sure that they kind of had enough to eat and things like that. There was this camaraderie, which I think is really interesting. And he was beloved because he could play any song you wanted. Yeah. Um, You know, by people like Bob Dylan and stuff. And then he ended up going up to uh, Big Pink, Tiny Tim did, uh, around the time they were making the music that would eventually end up uh on the basement tapes wow wow and he's he's featured on bootlegs on basement tape bootlegs for sure oh that's cool i have not heard that yet. i'll have to look for that <laughs> yeah yeah i can't imagine he's he was like a living breathing music archive for the folk people that must have been just the best yeah it'd be like an ipod that you could <laughs> sort of talk to yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know bob dylan actually had plans to make a film starring tiny tim there was 
uh, I don't know how much of it ever got actually shot, but there was this plan to make this like circus themed film with Tiny Tim as the kind of ringleader of it, and it, it never <laughs> fully got off the ground. I'm always amazed with Karen Dalton. Just she's someone that I feel like has only come to prominence in more recent years, but you know, here she was obviously in with the Greenwich scene, and she was at one point roommates with Cheech Marin, like <laughs> another one of those yeah <laughs> wild story there. Well, the, yeah, I mean, I really think that the, that crowd lived out of each other's pockets because they didn't have anyone else, mm-hmm. you know. Nobody wanted the, these shaggy beatniks, you know. <laughs> and I think New York was probably the best place for them, especially with, you know, the amount of uh, amazing jazz that was going on in lofts in those days. But, you know, it was cheap to live there and uh, they had each other. Yeah. Definitely. So a a little more bio on Tiny Tim. He had a a very strained relationship with his parents, which is also interesting because they're on the cover of this album. I know. Jeremy and I just watched the new documentary that came out about him. And the one thing they talked about in there is that apparently growing up, his parents had no door on their bedroom and him just like having to walk past seeing them having sex was a really normal part or a regular part of his growing up which had a very strange effect on him and that was partly the whole thing of you know the 78 record collection was kind of his sanctuary he would put on the headphones and he could disappear into his own world and feel like he was a part of what was going on in these records and he could kind of shut out the negative aspects of his life growing up with his family who also apparently were profoundly unsupportive of his music like yeah. even when he was famous and afterwards telling him that you know he he had no talent he couldn't do this stuff he shouldn't be doing this stuff his mom wanted to take him to a psychiatrist once he grew his hair out and started wearing makeup thinking that he was there was something deeply wrong with him and then there there's the aspect of him where he um was a big germaphobe and most likely had some form of ocd he had said that he would take something like four to six showers a day. Um, He wore adult diapers every day because he thought that underwear was too unsanitary. Yeah. That's Um, like what Howie Mandel has. Yeah. And then there's the whole issue of Tiny Tim's sexuality and where he stood on that. He has talked about having somewhat homosexual relationships with men at points but then it has also said some like very homophobic things at times and seem to have a very complicated uh, relationship with that. And there's also been a lot of reports from his three wives that he was rarely with them and seemed to be not interested in them and that he would dress up in women's clothing, things like that. And it just seemed like something that he was never really allowed to explore publicly or really you know get into because the other thing is he had this profound religious guilt that went along with everything every interview you will ever see with tiny tim he's bringing up jesus as much as he possibly can and he had a very complicated relationship with that he had people that were trying to help him or find people that could help him And he would just say, like, Jesus is the only psychiatrist I need or the only doctor I need, things like that. Right. And would talk about how he loved going to strip clubs, but because Jesus Christ had blessed him, he could do it without having impure thoughts. And just (laughs) God bless Tiny Tim. God bless Tiny Tim (laughs) and all of his very complicated cognitive dissonance and his, you know kind of severe arrested development from his strange family life growing up. Man, there's just so many things to get into with that. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of tragic in a lot of ways, but it also is interesting that he still did his best to overcome that and create this, this world, this safe space in his music, this kind of fantasy land to exist in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I heard that he, you know, he was really very a very lonely figure as well. And if you think about it, a lot of, you know, after, after the second album, and there was these, you know, years where he wasn't really doing any, doing records. And, uh, you know, if he did play gigs, it would just be him. It was a pretty, a pretty lonely furrow that he'd plowed. 
I don't know if you've seen it, but there was, I think to me, what told me a lot about him as a character was the footage from the Johnny Carson show from 1979. Have you seen it? I think I might have seen some parts of it. I've watched a few Johnny Carson interviews and they had a lot of clips from various ones on the documentary. But Okay, so there's there's a time he went on and he did Do You Think I'm Sexy? And it's really disturbing. It's 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 comical, but then you stop laughing and it's like watching a car crash. He is incredibly disturbed at the beginning of it. He's touching his face. He's nervous. But he also thinks, is he putting it on? He gets the song wrong. And eventually he just stops doing it and starts taking off his clothes. Mm. It's really very, very strange and very, very telling of what, what he is as a performer. Or what he had become as a performer. Where he went. Yeah, I think they did play a, a brief clip of that on the, the documentary, and it showed some of Carson's reactions, who seemed to be a little bit disturbed, but maybe concerned too, because Carson was a big supporter of him. He was on I know. Carson's show something like 20 times throughout his career, and it was Carson's idea to, to broadcast the wedding on the show. He invited Tiny Tim to do that, so he was a, you know, a, a fan in a lot of ways, and I'm sure was concerned seeing him fall into whatever was going on uh, yeah yeah anyway that it's you know it's 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 one of these things that i i'm surprised i hadn't heard of it before because it was such a sort of punk rock gesture in a sense yeah definitely and he you know he made some kind of punk related songs later in his career as well and talked about how he thought that you know, the, the heavy metal music that was coming out was really great in the 70s right. and 80s and things like that. Right. And he got involved with David Tibet, current 93, and stuff along those lines towards the end of his career. I know. I'm actually, actually it's funny because I'm, I'm friends with David and I, I wrote to him this morning and told him I was doing this and did he have anything to say? And he said, I've got really nothing to say or actually, you know, I've got way too much to say. So no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is the more research I did, the more I was just like, I don't even know how to like fully unpack this or like present it in a way like there's, there's just so much you could keep going on him. But yeah. I mean, he's a, a, a beautiful and tragic figure and inspiring and, you know, controversial, and I'm sure he probably hurt some people. At least uh, he seemed to have been kind of emotionally abusive to some of the women he was with. There's just so many facets to who Tiny Tim was. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, how I found out about Tiny Tim was actually from Genesis Peorage from Throbbing Gristle. Mm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. As an aside here, he told me about him, and uh, that was in 1978. I was friends with. Genesis and uh, I asked him what he liked to listen to and he said oh you should listen to Tiny Tim and I, I was on the phone I said who and he said Tiny Tim and I was like who's that and that's when I found <laughs> Tiny Tim's second album and I was like oh and to hear that coming from someone like Throbbing Gristle like I th expected him to say oh you should go out and listen to like you know a, a hairdryer <laughs> 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 and he, he pointed to this beautiful record uh, that was what he thought I should be listening to and indeed it was it resonated with people you know his his divine weirdness mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah, and like I said before, I think that's the biggest reason why Tiny, Tiny Tim remains a somewhat household name and in a lot of ways kind of a, a hero for the, the more outcast side of the music industry. Yeah, I wish I'd got to see him play. Mm -hmm. uh, I probably could have. For a while there, he was playing with uh, the band Brave Combo, and I know for sure that they played in Chicago, maybe in the early 90s or late 80s yeah i believe his final studio record that was released while he was alive is with the band brave combo and that's also ah. on, on spotify for people listening and it's it's really good it's interesting hearing him yeah right at the end of his life still have some magic in him with those songs especially backed up by a good band yeah yeah 
Well, should we listen to a, another track from this album? That's exactly what I was thinking. The next one up is She's Just Laughing At Me, side A, track six, and this is one of the Gene Page arrangements. <laughs> interesting about the second album that kind of added a a layer of complexity to it is in the first album I did not notice it as much but it seems like in this album he's reacting to the fact that a lot of people are laughing at him and not with him and that yeah. really comes out in that last song mm-hmm. yeah the parallel was not lost on me that that was probably the case there. I wonder, um, you know, when I, I re- that song resonated with me so much as a 14-year-old because I wasn't dating anyone and I really wanted to. And, you know, I wonder if they're laughing at me, if they were nice to me. But I wonder how much it had to do with the fact that it was a realization for him. But also, because he got famous, certain doors opened up for him. <laughs> like women started looking at him. I don't know what his dating life was like before he, you know, when when he was an unknown, whether he was, it seems like he was probably really awkward and shy around girls, but I just don't know. Yeah, that's the impression I got. Um, yeah. He talked about how part of the inspiration for the, the change in appearance with the hair and makeup was wanting to appear more effeminate and supposedly to want to you know attract more women because that was something he was not doing up until that point and he he did seem to have like a lot of different relationships with women and probably with a lot of men that were not mentioned as well right and he talked a lot about how he just admired women's beauty and nothing more than that because it would be a sin to kiss or touch them and there, there's a lot of history of him having very inappropriate but verbal only relationships with underage women uh the documentary touched on that too that there's Mm -hmm. a lot of times where he's having like very explicit conversations with 13 year olds over the phone underage girls yeah yeah exactly so but then there was the whole thing of how he always talked about how he viewed himself as a teenager in his head he refused to tell people his age for the longest time in interviews because he wanted to stay a teenager and not like remind himself that he was aging. It's quite Michael Jackson ish. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some parallels to that in a lot of ways. 
yeah, you know, immensely talented, but lots of arrested development and, you know, not very strong role models growing up. And that yeah, the uh, living with his parents thing reminded me of Daniel Johnson. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The one thing I kind of picked up on, too, is that he seemed to have an attitude with women that they were more of like a status symbol or a trophy than wanting to have an actual relationship with them. Yeah, he even talked about how before his first marriage, he used to do a thing where he would make a literal trophy and give it to whoever he thought was the prettiest girl that he had met that year. <laughs> and he also had a very, like, incredibly traditional uh, view of what a woman's role should be. I mean, uh, he, he, he was very staunchly and literal about the Bible he read. Mm-hmm. Yep. There was, there was a lot going on there. And I think that this this caused consternation because Miss Vicky was, you know, a very smart lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, although she was young, uh, she was uh, 17 when they married, but he, she, you know, she had an opinion. And they also had a child together. Yep. Um, and that must have really thrown a rock into his, I mean, he built his own little palace you know, really. And I mean, I think it started in that room with those 78s listening to them. He built his own palace. And I get that as well, being a musician myself. We do tend to build our little rock and roll palaces in our heads. Uh, but some of us can't come out of them. I can. I have to. But I like to escape back to it every so often, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seemed to be fully invested in staying in that dream world that he had created for himself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think the more you think of his music from that angle, listening to these records, especially this one, you're getting, you know, not only a glimpse into the time period it was created and like the turn of the century that inspired it, but also it's a real trip inside Tiny Tim's head. Yes. And the, the, you get a glimpse of the, his own little fantasy world, which is yes. a fascinating experience. I like the uh, aspect of him talking to the audience throughout. It's a very show business record in that regard (laughs) yeah definitely and also like a little trippy that he's you know playing multiple different characters and interviewing himself on the record and things like that yeah yeah so i had a couple final little thoughts anecdotes or whatever here i have a little theory on why he was able to get so popular for the you know like two years that he was in the spotlight and making money i think that part of it is he kind of had this like perfect Venn diagram of who might have been interested in Tiny Tim and for different reasons. So I think there was, there was kind of like the weirdo outsider hippies that recognized that element in him. And then there was like, you know, more like normies who are just gawking at him and are just like, Oh, he's a weirdo and a high pitched voice. And isn't that silly? And then they lost interest quickly. But then as we also mentioned, I think part of the reason why Johnny Carson had him on so often is because Johnny knew all of the songs that he was covering and there was still an older generation that had all of these old like ragtime songs and Tin Pan Alley knowledge that recognized them to be covers and were interested in it from that angle. That's my shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you're right. I'd never thought about that, but that generation were probably really freaking out because there was a sort of scorched earth policy that, you know, people like Hendrix brought along with them and, you know, the long hairs or whatever. And to have to have someone younger who was not Sinatra singing traditional songs must must have been of some comfort, perhaps. Mm. Yeah, it's funny, the other day, though, somebody, somebody I, I saw somewhere where they were comparing Tiny Tim and his TV appearances to... Um, the Joker. Oh, and that's interesting. Having him on the show just because he is such a freak, um, you know that that kind of thing that happened in in the movie that was that was interesting. Even the makeup is kind of similar in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that was one thing. There's there's so many interviews you can find clips from, and unfortunately, the vast majority of them really seem like they're just kind of poking fun at him, especially all yeah. of his appearances on Howard Stern in the 80s yeah. and things like that. Um, but then, you know, when he's able to be interviewed by someone that really understands and appreciates him, like um, there's a there's a brief Terry Gross interview that he did later in his life where 
she kind of prefaced it talking about that she had always thought he was a novelty act until she learned about the music archivist angle and gained a whole new set of respect for him after that. So, uh-huh. yeah, it's interesting just seeing the range of how people have interpreted him or, or you know, how they reacted to it. Well, Sean, I am at a loss to comprehend what you could have put together for a, a Spotify recommended playlist for this episode. It's such a <laughs> unique figure. Yeah, I had a lot of fun making the playlist for this one. There's a there's a mix of uh, stuff from the same time period that's also kind of, you know, outsider music. I put a handful of those turn-of-the-century songs that he was influenced by, um, as well as some artists that were maybe influenced by him later on. Uh, one of the first guys that came to mind as far as the, the Tin Pan Alley connection is the artist Leon Redbone. Mm. Kind of both had a a playfulness to their presentation and their own like world inside their head and kind of a mystique about it. Yeah. So uh, I got some Leon Redbone on there, some older artists like Henry Burr. I put a baby D track on there. Um, Nice. I think there's a lot of musical similarities as well as other things. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a Daniel Johnston track on there, Raymond Scott, John Fahey, another Mm -hmm. brilliant but troubled musician buzzy linhart who we've covered on the show before frank zappa the mothers of invention his label mate uh sparks i think is a group that Mm -hmm. had some influence bonzo dog doodah band (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, another group doing the throwback stuff Mm mm-hmm I put a version of the song Beautiful Ohio by Tony Martin on there, which Tiny had stated was one of the first songs that he ever really loved. Um, he had the the version done by Henry Burr, I believe, and that was like his first mm. favorite 78 that he would just play over and over and over again. Some other artists on there, I put a Wild Man Fisher track. Uh, Mrs. Miller, another artist mm-hmm. that yes. people were laughing at unfairly, who I'd like to cover on the show at some point too. Harry Nilsson, who we mentioned, uh, The Ink Spots, David Bromberg the Mills Brothers, and a Rudolph Valentino track. Excellent. So you can find that all on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to find this playlist and all other Season 2 playlists. Fantastic. Be sure to check out our Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show and getting bonus content in return, patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. That's right. Last little story here. I watched a brief interview with Weird Al, who is does some narration on the, the Tiny Tim documentary, and he told a quick story about going to see Ringo Starr in concert uh, earlier on in his career. And between songs, Ringo had spotlighted Weird Al and was like, ladies and gentlemen, we have a celebrity in the audience. And Weird Al was just so flattered that he was about to get a real shout out from Ringo Starr. And then Ringo points <laughs> at him and says, it's Tiny Tim. <laughs> <laughs> just like legit confused him because the the Beatles were fans of Tiny Tim yeah, previous to that. So right. they had met before, you know? Um, and then, you know, we, we had mentioned that Tiny has had some uh, film experience at different times. He was also in a B level horror film called blood harvest in 1987, where he plays a killer clown. And I also put a track <laughs> from that on the soundtrack. Awesome. On the, 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 <laughs> The theme song that he wrote for it has this line in it that, where he says, I want to make the whole world laugh, even if the laugh's on me. <laughs> just kind of just, in a lot of ways, just sums the whole thing up. But, you know, yeah. strange killer clown who's just willing to do whatever <laughs> regardless of the reaction. I hope that <laughs> casting director went on to make a ton of money. They clearly <laughs> knew what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> So, Chris, let's let's turn the, the spotlight to you. Do you have any projects or any plugs you'd like to drop right now? I do. I have uh, a new album coming out in June of 21, in a few months' time. And um, it's a labor of love. I recorded it last year and wrote it last year. It's called The Birthday Poems. And it's, uh, I guess, you, it's a double album that I made with another singer called Monica Queen. Monica is a Scottish singer. She's best known for, she sang on the first Bell and Sebastian single. Mm. But I wrote an album based on the relationship between uh, the Scottish poet George Mackay Brown and his girlfriend slash muse, Stella Cartwright. Uh, They had a very interesting relationship and she had a very interesting relationship with many of the her contemporary Scottish poets of that time. This is the 1950s and 60s. But it's a very unheard story. 
So I did as much research as I could and I made uh, an album of it. And um, it's coming out on Janana Records in uh, June of this year. Wonderful. And how do people get it or find it? You know, it's going to be, well, it'll be on Spotify and it'll be a way, uh, you know, on digital platforms. Uh, Janana Records, J-N-A-N-A, is the label and chrisconley.com and my Bandcamp page, the Chris Conley Bandcamp page, um, it, it will be available from all these places. Cool. Well, we will keep a lookout for that in just a couple months here. Thank you. Are you uh, interested in mentioning where you what, the place you manage? Oh, I I don't manage it anymore. Oh, you don't. <laughs> no, uh, Reckless Records. I I I've not been there for about six years actually. Um, okay. What I do manage now is a classroom. <laughs> ah. Whoa. I'm a teacher. What do you teach? I'm a preschool teacher. Far out. I'm in uh, early childhood uh, education, talking of Tiny Tim. <laughs> um, that's what I do. That said, I am still a crate digger. <laughs> and uh, lockdown was very hard for me because uh, I would have dreams about going through record bins. Oh, uh, same. And, and Absolutely. finding weird records that don't exist by people I love and waking up <laughs> sad. <laughs> But I've started going back to record shops again, and I'm so happy. <laughs> nice. I have a friend who used to have a reoccurring nightmare that he would show up at this, you know, unnamed thrift store that just had every rare record he's ever looked for, and he would pull it out to check the condition, and then the grooves would just fall off the record. I've had the same dream. <laughs> Whoa. <Wow. laughs> I have, or it just sort of melts in my hand and yeah. turns into sort of ash. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, all, all of us record nerds are on the same wavelength, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Always will be. <laughs> well, does anyone have any final thoughts about Tiny Tim before we sign off and play the final track? I want to throw this sort of epiphany I had, because I'm guessing some of our listeners had never heard this and maybe are hearing it and not sure how to feel about it. But I had this realization at some point listening to it that in this time, the time gap, I mean, it's similar to like modern garage rock bands, like say the Black Lips or King Khan, where they're, I mean, they're playing music similar to stuff from, I mean, that's like 60 years ago now. And but they're doing it earnestly and lovingly and bringing something new to it as well. And I invite you to look at what Tiny Tim is doing through that lens. Yeah. 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 Sean didn't put or Sean didn't mention an artist that I suggested for the playlist, which was Maddie Pryor from the band oh, Steel sure. Eye Span. Steel Eye Span, yeah. Yeah. And that's you know, that's another musician and, and group. Who were doing anachronistic music stuff, you know, well before their time and bringing new things to it as well. You know, like Steel Eye Span, it's mixing, you know, this uh, English folk with Prague. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Also, you, you nostalgically speaking, the last um, three or four Bob Dylan albums were all covers of old-timey songs, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, he did a triple album of just sort of songs from the 30s and 40s, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of Great American Songbook style. Yeah, yeah. Yep, definitely. And the other thing is, you know, if you go through this Spotify playlist and hear some of the older tracks that he's covering and artists he was influenced by, the vocal style is actually very similar to a lot of the things Tiny Tim was doing. You know, the, the falsetto and the very grand gestures and things that he's doing were much more common then. And a lot of that was uh, simply because of where these early artists were performing and how they were recording. And if you didn't have a strong, high-pitched singing voice, a lot of times you just couldn't cut through the mix. Couldn't cut through the mix, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. How wonderful. Get rid of PAs. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, Chris, any final thoughts before we play this last track? 
No, uh, you know, I, I've I've been in love with this album for about 40 years and uh, it's it's I hear something new every time. I think it's just a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful piece of American art. Agreed. All right. Last track. It's all right now. Side B track four. And this is a Perry Botkin Jr. arrangement. And I noticed it was ri- it was written by Hoyt Axton, the song. True, yes, yes. The uh, ah. country legend who I yeah I first remember being the father in the movie The Black Stallion when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, very random, quick last thought. I think there's also a lot of parallels between Tiny Tim and Andy Kaufman. Mm. Yeah, yeah, very much so. All right, I will, I will leave everybody thinking on that while we play this last track. It's all right now off Tiny Tim's second album. Thanks for listening. I am Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Peter Cook. I'm Chris Connolly. Dark is the sound that my memory makes. Lonely the image my yesterday's take. Down the direction in which I'm going Not where I feel I must fall I seem to hear a voice call It's all right now Take it easy Don't you worry It's all right now Here is the place that I'd most like to be High above life's mundanity Sunshine and laughter 